Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. On today's episode, we talked with Professor Deanna Gates from the University of Michigan about her work doing rehabilitation biomechanics and her studies, including reducing effort for walking with powered ankle exoskeletons and clinical gait analysis teachings, as well as her experience as an industry injury biomechanics consultant. But first, a bit of boom. Bit of boom. So today's article on Bit of Boom is in the journal Biomechanics, a 29... Where is the date? It's from January 2019. The title of this article is Automated Remote Fall Detection Using Impact Features from Video and Audio. (laughs) I'm thinking too far ahead. And audio. The study was done by Evelyn Geertzema and her colleagues from Stichting Epilepsy Institution in the Netherlands and the Image Sciences Institute in the Netherlands. So I really liked this article because um, it was focusing on how we can detect falls. And I thought it was interesting because usually falls are detected with accelerometers and a lot of the studies that I've seen. Um, They were actually looking at using video cameras and audio as kind of sensitive, versatile, and relatively cheap sensors to be able to quantify movement and then um, analyze the video stream and detect falls. Oh, wow. So just like a normal video camera or... Yeah, exactly. And so they proposed... Um, an algorithm for the remote detection of these falls. It was interesting because there's not there's not a lot of data on videos of people falling, but they did have one data set of people acting like they were falling and then also just moving around normally to train the uh, model on. And then they tested it on a set of falls, on of real-life falls resulting from seizures of people with epilepsy. Wow. So they're able to actually test the accuracy of the model. The features that they used in the model were the maximum acceleration of a person starting to fall and then the deceleration of them hitting the ground and then also the maximum velocity between those two. And then it would be accompanied by the sound of them hitting the floor basically. So it kind of took all of those and if those fell within a calculation window then it was determined a fall. So then they applied the train algorithm to the data set, and then the model resulted in 90% sensitivity for detection of falls and 92% specificity. And then in the real-life data, six out of nine falls were detected with a specificity of 99.7%. Wow, that's really accurate. Yeah, it was really awesome. I thought it was a really different take on how we can use different types of data to look at fall detection. And I'm sure it can apply to other, you know, looking at other things as well. 
Yeah, I feel like that's really cool that biomechanics is really coming. Another example of how it's coming out of the lab. There's still traditional tools, but like in a sort of non-traditional sense now. And like everyone can be a biomechanist and run these types of experiments. And they're able to train on a data set that wasn't what they were testing on at all. Like they didn't use that at all for training and it still did really well. I think that kind of shows the robustness of the algorithm. It was kind of interesting to think about how it would be like dependent on sound happening right so if like mm. they fell and didn't make a sound then it wouldn't be classified wait so if a person falls in the woods <laughs> and doesn't make a sound did they still, still fall? fall not according to this algorithm <laughs> <laughs> um and also just features being dependent on cameras being placed in a certain position and things like that so there's oh. definitely room for just kind of expanding it and and continuing to make it more robust but i thought it was a, a unique study in terms of the uh, data set. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And just a great example of that biomechanics in the wild and moving forward in biomechanics. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, thanks. All right, now for our interview with Deanna Gates. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Boom. We're here today with Deanna Gates, who is an associate professor in movement science and biomedical engineering and also the director of rehabilitate of the rehabilitation biomechanics laboratory at the University of Michigan. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So the first question we like to start off with is um, tell us about when you first knew that you wanted to be a biomechanist. <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, so <laughs> I, I think it was actually pretty young. I um, I say that I, I decided that I wanted to build Luke Skywalker's hand, and that's still what I'm trying to do. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea that we can kind of take something and interface it directly with the body and that you can get um, natural movement from that has, has always been, I think, fascinating for me, and, and I just wasn't sure exactly how to go about that. And so I started learning about sort of what an engineer is uh, and in high school. And so that that's how I found my way into, into biomedical engineering um, is that kind of interface there with maybe, maybe making human movement easier for people. It seemed like your thesis during your bachelor's was more maybe like wet lab work. And I was wondering how you ended up transitioning into um, more of the engineering and prosthetic side of things. Yeah. So at, um, I, so I went in my undergrad at the University of Michigan, or sorry, in Michigan, at the University of Virginia um, in mechanical engineering. So at the time, uh, biomedical engineering didn't exist as a department. Um, and so I learned about it, you know, throughout my undergrad career, but we didn't have, like, I didn't, wasn't able to take classes at it, and, and there weren't a lot of labs that I was aware of. So I did really experience um it in different ways through my undergrad. So I was in, worked in a bunch of different labs and kind of figured out what aspects of research I liked and didn't like and, and where I wanted to go from there. So every um, senior at uh, UVA is required to do a thesis. So that was my year experience in the lab and it was great. Um, I don't know that I was passionate about making um, gels at the end of that. <laughs> but it was a good experience. And I learned a lot about research. And I learned I really liked being in the lab and um, and kind of working toward some goal and reading the papers and, 
and sort of the community of the lab environment that I didn't know maybe existed at the time. It's actually kind of cool that you got to be part of an experience that didn't have a formal bioengineering or biomedical engineering program because I think that allows you to to kind of forge your own path and figure those things out outside of a strict like departmental regulation or structure. It was it was really nice and I, I mean I think I like the the standard mechanical engineering curriculum because it's very like it's very consistent across departments and and schools or sorry schools and so people really know what you're getting out of it. Um, whereas BME can be, mean something different everywhere. And so so that was nice. And, and I had a minor in um, biomedical engineering as an undergrad. So I got to take some, some classes and get a little bit of exposure and kind of learn more about what I wanted to do next. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great lead into our next question, which is um, we'd just like to hear a little bit more about your research in the Rehabilitation Biomechanics Lab. Uh, we see on your on your website and other things that uh, that your lab translates the subtleties of human movement into prosthetic function to give users the most natural experience possible. Which I like that you really um, are pushing for that natural experience because I think a lot of the times in biomechanics we think about certain parameters or um, features that we want to optimize for that might not necessarily be. Um, exactly aligned with what feels good or what feels natural or something like that. Yeah, so my lab um, is is really focused on, I mean, exactly what you said, of, of trying to promote outcomes essentially with assistive technology. Um, so mostly we work on prosthetics, but we do that both at the upper and the lower limb. Um, and we also have some work in um, ankle foot orthoses or braces that go around the ankle and help support function during movement. Um, and so in all of these cases, what we're really trying to do is figure out, number one, what the user wants. So what do they, what do they want to be able to do with this device? Um, and how can we make that happen in a way that is natural, that doesn't give them some extra cognitive burden? Because some of these can be really difficult to use and you have to really put a lot of thought into it. Um, and we want to be able to uh, them to use them efficiently too. So we don't want it to cost them a lot of energy um, to be able to move with these different devices. Yeah. So how do you kind of balance being able to do that on a personal level, like an individual level, versus making prosthetics that anyone could use? I guess do you focus on more of like the personalization of them? Yeah, I would say um, I think. In science, a lot of times we're looking for this p-value, right? You have this big group and you want to show that something is like statistically different. Um, in this population, it just doesn't work because it's a, it's so heterogeneous. And what you're really trying to do is, is say, okay, is this device going to be good for the population as a whole? And in, in, every, in most cases, no, it's not. <laughs> and so who is it that we should be gearing this toward? Um, so if there is a certain group of this like the patient pool that is going to benefit, how do we target this toward them and how do we make it um, the best for that group of individuals? And so more and more when we get into our, um, our work, we're looking at like, what are these predictive factors about a person that predicts their success with the device? Because we definitely don't see it as a one size fits all. Okay. Could you give us an example of some quality that you found to be predictive? 
Yeah, so we um, have been doing a lot of work with powered ankle prostheses. And so there are some commercial devices out there that give, they have a motor and they give you this little burst of power as you're walking. So it would be the function that your calf muscles would normally be doing if you had them. Um, and what you'd hope is that if you give someone this power that they're able to incorporate that and use it to reduce the effort that they have to put into walking. So we hope this makes it feel more natural and it, and it takes you, you know, less energy to move. Um, but what we actually find is that it, it doesn't reduce the energetic cost for everyone. It does for some people, but not for others. Um, and so we've been trying to, to figure out why and, and what is it about um, the person that helps them benefit from it, whereas someone else won't. Um, and it seems to be it's, it's a characteristic of almost their, their functional level. So there's um, this classification that the clinician gives someone about what do you want to do. Um, and so we have this, uh, what they're calling a K3 person, which is a community ambulator. So someone who walks around their environment, um, they, they don't feel very limited, but they're not going out and and uh, running marathons and doing that. So that's your K4. That person wants to do like athletic events and they wanna do um, like hiking and things like that. Um, and it seems like those people benefit, whereas the people who you might think who are a little lower functioning that you might think stand to benefit more, they actually don't. And so what we think is it's sort of this intuitive thing, something about about athletes is that you have this, this sort of knowledge of, we, we liken it to like a skateboarder, which is like, okay, I'm gonna push with my foot here and I know what that's causing um, to the skateboard to do. And where my, so I know how to position my body mass over my foot to get the device to do what I want it to do. And so people have that kind of inherent ability and they're able to be like, okay, I should push my foot here and that's when I get the power and this is how I'm going to use it. And whereas some of the others don't have that. And so it just may be something that needs to be trained into them a bit more or that they need more um, experience and practice with. So is it usually because they're not able to utilize the device in the way that it was meant to be utilized is why they're not seeing the benefit? Yeah, that's what we think. And we think that they're fighting it a bit. And so we've been looking at their muscle activity as well. Um, and that you see that they they tend to tense up or co-contract and kind of fight what the device is doing instead of just incorporating it into their movement. Was there someone that you worked with, a patient that, that you helped be able to ride their motorcycle again? I think we saw something like that on your website. It sounded pretty interesting. Uh, writing a motorcycle. I can't remember this one on the website. Um, <laughs> well, I thought it was in the video. It might have. Maybe, maybe I misheard. I, no, no. This was, it was actually at the Army. We had um, we had someone who at the Army would ride his, <laughs> his motorcycle with a body-powered prosthesis, which is kind of funny, actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But he made it work. I don't. I don't know that I thought it was the greatest thing to do, but um, he was able to make it work. And he kind of jigged up a little thing to put onto his hand so that he could close down on the um, accelerator. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are definitely a lot of creative solutions that um, that our patients will come in with, and and sometimes where we're like, I don't. I don't really think the prosthetist made that for you. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, we had actually one of our patients come in about two weeks ago in a socket that he made himself. <laughs> he oh, just, wow. Yeah, he had taken the one and I, 
and just completely, completely rejigged it. So, which didn't work for our study, but it's fun that he's, he's kind of changing out and making it work for him. I don't know that his clinician would say the same, but um, it's good. It's good to see that you have some some sort of control over your own device and that you can kind of manipulate it to do what you want. Right. Yeah. That's cool that people like that's kind of I like um, going back to like sort of the missions or the, the summary of what your lab is having devices that help people feel like they're maintaining some natural ability or, you know, natural place in their environment. Um, I think being able to do what you want to do is part, uh, such a key part of that. And um, the fact that you're working with people to, um, to help them do that is great. We also saw that you're teaching some hands-on learning courses or a hands-on learning course on clinical gait analysis. And I think there's also another one at Michigan on motion capture. And it just sounded really interesting to actually have um, these really interactive courses. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more, like what you do in the course and how, how this hands-on learning benefits the students and, and the patients. Yeah. So our, um, so we will give the two courses. So, uh, Dr. Melissa Gross teaches a motion capture course. And so the students learn how to place markers on a person, how to, how to build a model of them. Um, and then they, do experiments where they can test them doing different activities and and show what that movement looks like. Um, So my course kind of is an extension of that, which is now you have this data, what does it mean? And so we, I've given them data from different uh, case studies of uh, mostly um, children, but not all. So we have children with um, cerebral palsy. We have some prosthetic users and um, actually patients post-stroke. And they're looking at the all of the different graphs and the videos of movement to try to figure out for this particular patient, what do I think is their um, underlying impairment and how would I treat that? So we're looking at kind of the field and giving them, so the treatment plan is not really necessarily part of it, but kind of the idea of, okay, well, you'd see this movement and, and that's indicative of having like a weak glute meat, uh, muscle. And so if that muscle is weak, then, you know, you should, you should do your training in that area. So that's kind of the level of which they're getting. It's just trying to figure out what, what is that muscle that's causing this type of movement pattern? And can I identify it? And can I figure out, you know, what's the primary driver of the impairment and what's just a compensation for that impairment? That's a great experience for people to for students to have, I think. Um, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for more like wet bench or, um, you know, fabrication side of um, Mm -hmm. things when you're an undergrad, but then to be able to actually work with patient data and case data, that's, um, I think, really powerful. Yeah. And it's something that we don't have a ton of training in, even at the graduate level. Um, And so I've worked in in two different clinical gate labs. And usually what... um, what people are doing is kind of learning on the job. Essentially, you're familiar with the area, but not necessarily having the experience of knowing exactly what these graphs look like and what you're doing with that information. And what do you think on that note about people having varying levels of experience when they're doing these analyses and things like that? Um, and maybe like there there are standard guidelines, but you know, at the end of the day, it's still a human doing the interpretation and analysis and 
um, pulling it all together to make a comprehensive picture to then relay back to a doctor or lead to some clinical outcome for the patient themselves, which is what we care about at the end of the day. So it's very human centered versus like now I feel like with the emergence of um, wearable sensors and other things like that and other tools that we have to get more, you know, comprehensive pictures of people's gait either in their daily lives or in the lab and things like that and have automated methods by which to characterize or classify gait disorders. Like it's a a long (laughs) circular way of coming about this question, but I'm interested in your perspective on the automated versus like more clinical human-centered approach to this gait analysis. Yeah, I would say it'd be great if there was a little more the objective criteria, like if you could put this in and and you could do an analysis that says, hey, maybe you should look in this this area. Um, I think that would be fantastic. I think at this point, though, it's very much an art form more than a science um, it, because it, it involves so much experience of, of knowing what to do with the information because just seeing one angle as abnormal doesn't really tell you the whole picture. You have to then have the experience to go dive down into other things like do I need to look at... Um, a clinical assessment and figure out whether the range of motion is affected. Do I need to look at something like spasticity instead? Because maybe the range of motion is fine, but it is like that uh, tension when you have, you know, muscles moving at, at speed that is really the issue. Um, or, you know, maybe it's actually not stemming from that joint at all, but from a different joint. And so you kind of have to tease it out in a lot of different ways. Um, if we could build the sort of like a more objective um, flow type program that you could step through people through this process of like, okay, if you see this, do you check this? Did you check this? Did you check this? I think that would be very useful. Um, But at this point, nothing like that exists. And so it's very much dependent on the experience of the person who's, who's doing the assessment. Right. Yeah. You need like a flow diagram of like, or tree. I use one of those for like stats tests. Sometimes it's like, is your sample this? Is your sample? <laughs> you're just, and then it brings you to the stat test to run. <laughs> it's like what you need for, for um, yeah, clinical gait analysis. So after your PhD, you did some work outside of academics, and I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit more, specifically your job in engineering consulting and what you did. There. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I work for um, a company that does uh, injury biomechanics assessment. Um, And so typically what you're doing is being hired to serve on different cases where, you know, a person has been injured in a different accident um, and there is a a trial and you're trying to figure out who, what was the scenario that actually happened? So the person has one story, you know, usually maybe the car company or the, um, other person who is involved in the accident has a different story and you're trying to piece together all of the evidence um, to figure out what exactly happened. Um, And so a large part of what I spent my time doing was actually going through and learning how to assess x-rays. And so dealing with like looking at the bones and then from the bone, you can tell um, what type of force would have to have caused that. Um, And so that enables you to look at the scenario and say, okay, well, this this break could only be caused by twisting, but what they're describing is a scenario which is definitely bending, or you have something that's falling on someone, then you know their explanation doesn't make sense. And so there are some that are like that. And then I think the, the most fun part was the, the cases that are a little more unusual. So you have to go figure out, okay, they have 
developed this impairment that I've never heard of. I have to go figure out what that is and what kind of forces cause it um, to know if like the mechanics support that. Did, what kind of tools did you use to figure? Did you ever use like simulations or things like that to try to figure it out? Mm-hmm. So we do we do some things called like surrogate analysis, which is you have a person who is around the same size um, and you put them in these different scenarios to figure out whether it's um, feasible or not. Then we also run simulations of like we had uh, different car accidents and things and you can look at the tread and um, the ground. Um, so like the skid marks and things like that to figure out how fast the vehicle was going. So there are there's simulation software that does that. Um, where you're putting in all of the relevant parameters that you can measure to figure out, okay, is this, you know, what combination of things can I do to get this scenario? Um, mm-hmm. Wow. That's kind of sounds like CSI when they're like doing a forensic, <laughs> like something, but yeah, you're trying to do it to, yeah, like uh, figure out what the injury is and what caused it. That's really cool. Yeah. I really like those shows, but they're very unrealistic. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, yeah. They're actually too scary for me. I can't watch those shows, but <laughs> um. the things that they can do in like bones in thirty seconds is is just amazing to me because most of them are not actually possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you can't do it in that period of time. It's these are these are long simulations that just take. Um, they do, right now take a really long time to, to go through and, and try out all the different possibilities. Yeah, we had a um, someone that studies dinosaur biomechanics said that he worked with people um, that made Jurassic Park to be like, oh, the T-Rex can't run that fast. So we should be like, hey, you can't, you can't analyze those injuries that fast. Uh, yeah, and for the most part, you can't prove something happened. You can only prove something didn't happen. Oh. I see. So is it kind of like – like you kind of um, do process of elimination to figure out what happened or how? Yeah, you can say like, well, it's feasible that it did happen this way and I can't disprove that, but I can never prove that there's only one solution, right? Like this is exactly what happened. If there is a scenario, you can say, well, that scenario definitely didn't happen based on the evidence. Um, but, But typically you don't have enough to tell you exactly what did happen. Did you have to go in court and and sit and be questioned there? Or do you have to like get, have some additional communication skills um, with that position? Yeah, you, you definitely have to get up and, and be an authority figure. Um, I, I didn't uh, stay long enough actually to testify myself. So I was doing a lot of the preliminary work for someone who was then going and doing the testifying afterwards. Um, because it, it just takes a while uh, to get ready to do that because um, it, it is a very intimidating process. And I think most of these, uh, the cases that you're working don't actually end up going to trial. So you may be um, deposed in, so you're meeting then with just lawyers in a room um, and going through an, your analysis. And then that may eventually go to trial, but that's pretty pretty rare. What was like your biggest learning from that experience, would you say? Oh, I learned a ton. I And it's in things that I never, th- I mean, I'm a biomechanist by nature, but I had to learn about cars, yeah. um, <laughs> which I was like, I didn't know brands of cars at all by, before starting or the different parts of the cars. And um, 
So learning about, you know, A pillars and B pillars. <laughs> I and learned what those what are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I worked at for, for Toyota for a little bit too. And that was like the first week there was just learning about the parts of the car. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of incidental things um, like that. And, and, and then learning about, we got to do rollover testing, which was really interesting um, and sled testing. So you're doing like the sudden deceleration of um, the sled. So we did some tests with dummies and that was the first experience I had with that there too. So, so yeah, it was a, it was definitely a big learning experience in, you know, that year and a half that I was there. Yeah, that's awesome. So how did you end up back in academics? What made you want to go back to be um, a professor? Um. I think I decided at that point, I thought it was interesting, but I didn't feel like I was helping people. And that's kind of how I got into the field to start with. Um, you're, you're sort of helping people, but very indirectly. Um, and, and so I went to work for the army afterwards. <laughs> it's very different um, where you definitely have a more immediate sense of, of the work that you're doing, influencing somebody's life. Um, and and so that was kind of why I made that move. And then I was looking um, to go into back into my own research, back into academics afterwards. And that seemed like a good place to kind of make that transition. So I went to work for um, the Army in San Antonio, where they have a lab that focuses on um, prosthetic use. And so they're looking really at outcomes with um, with prosthetics for the people who are in active duty, who've come back from um, injuries in the war or, you know, through other things, but they're all active duty soldiers and they're all uh, living on site as part of their rehabilitation. And so the things that you can do there are are really different than what you can do elsewhere because you can really look at someone throughout their whole rehabilitation process. because they're there and, and that's kind of their, what they're called, they do, their duty station um, for that period of time. And they're, they're really there just to get better and get back to top function. Wow. So what a stark contrast of, yeah, like the proximity to care uh, for, for the patient or, or for the person rather, um, the focus of your work. Um, mm-hmm. and- yeah, so it was, it was really great. I mean, I was, I was not, I'm not a clinician, so I wasn't involved in, in kind of like the day-to-day of that, but through the research process, you get a lot of interaction um, with everyone. And, and it's a really unique environment in the sense that you're seeing people um, go through their therapy in various ways because the, the first floor is devoted toward the research and that's where we had the lab. The next floor was um, uh, prosthetics and orthotics, and then we had physical therapy, and then we had occupational therapy. And so every, everyone is in one building, like all working together. Um, and so it's, it's a very unique environment. Yeah, that's a, great for collaboration and also just for you kind of, that's cool. You see your patients maybe graduate through the, the floors of the building. <laughs> um, very cool. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, and we now are going to move to one of my favorite questions that we get to ask people, which is um, if you could share a research or work-related fail, quote-unquote fail, we like to talk about failure in a positive sense because it's always an opportunity for learning if you, if you take it that way. So um, if you can think of any or share any, we're happy to, happy to listen. 
I was like, there's so many. All the times that people walked on devices that broke or <laughs> um, <laughs> broke mid-collection or things that you thought were working. Um, and it's, it's hard to choose just one. I think that, uh, that that's kind of an inherent part of research is there's always the things that, um, that you have to try and give it a shot and, and see if it's going to play out or not. Um, the thing I tell my students is that the best part of biomechanics is you always get an answer. It may not be the answer you want, but you'll always get an answer. So, and uh, when I used to do work with cells, you know, if you didn't get it, or you were trying to make gels for running um, electrophoresis and, and on a very small scale, if it didn't work, you just had to do it again. And then if it didn't work, you just had to do it again. But you didn't really have an answer. It wasn't a publishable <laughs> thing. It was like, I have to keep trying. Um, whereas with human subjects, it, it, it may or may not work out, but you have something at the end of it. So I, I always think that's exciting. <laughs> um, there are certainly things that did not work out the way that we expected them to. Um, and actually, I think some of those have been the most interesting. So, uh, the, for instance, the study I was talking to you about with the powered ankle, we thought everyone would benefit. We were like, oh, this great device, you give someone power, they use power. And then it worked out to be actually a much more interesting study and it's kind of evolved into many spin-offs into in different ways about figuring out about people's learning process and, and how we train them. Um, and then also looking at like patient expectations and things. Um, and so, so I think all of those sort of evolve into better things. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So what are you most excited for in for the future of biomechanics? Um, I think they I mean there's a lot and I think it's it's really emerging and um, as a field because technology is improving and our ability to do things is is really improving. Um, I think one of the really huge pieces is this ability you talked about to monitor people more outside of the lab. Um, because a lot of what we deal with, especially in the assistive technologies realm, is having studies of just level walking at a constant speed, which is such a small representation of how people are going to use this and what they're going to do. Um, and I think we're, we're trying to get more sensors on people and now you're, you know, the battery life is expanding and your ability to measure these things is improving. And so you can look at what people actually do in the home and how do you, and that can enhance our ability to like design and control devices too, when we know how they're using them and their right. life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it's like biomechanics is moving out of the lab and out of the clinic and really into the world. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us and um, for sharing all those really great insights with us. I really liked what you said um, about always having an answer because I think that's something that um, I often forget because if it's not the answer you want, then it's sometimes discouraging. But to think of it as always having an answer, at least that's a really positive way to think about it. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing to see, you know, at you first wanting to make Luke Skywalker's hand to going to like really like prosthetics that are really helping people and working with people to understand what they need. Um, so it was really awesome to learn about that. And I should say, I think we're pretty close to Luke Skywalker's hand. <laughs> we'll have to bring you back on for when you've, when you've eclipsed on that. 
gotten there when it can control a lightsaber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Okay, big thank you to Deanna for that awesome interview. And I was really inspired by her story of how she got into biomechanics, starting with Luke Skywalker's hand. Yeah. Um, I actually have a Star Wars joke, Melissa, if you'd like to hear it. I could not say no to one of your jokes, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was just wondering if you knew if BB was hungry. No, I don't know if BB is hungry. You're right. Because... BB-8. <laughs> BB-8. She, like, made a really cringy face that you all are missing. <laughs> so let me just paint that picture for you there. Mm, yes. <laughs> that was a good one. Now we've oh, solved that mystery. we solved that mystery. <laughs> so here's my favorite part of the episode, Research Fails. I was happy to be a biomechanist today when I was talking to one of my friends. (laughs) Um, As she was detailing the hardships of one of the postdocs in her plant biology lab. Oh. Were there weeds? (laughs) Did she forget to water her plants? There was something like a bit pesty that happened. (laughs) So this postdoc in her lab was doing a project on genetically modified maize or corn. Okay. And he was growing his plants that had been like carefully engineered, taken a long time to to get and obtain. And they'd even they'd, you know, planted them in this special place and put all kinds of protection around them to, you know, keep them safe. Right. And he comes out one morning to find that his four important plants Actually, I'm not sure what the number was. He, he comes out one morning to find <laughs> that his plants are eaten by squirrels. Oh, no. So he's set back now a year. Those squirrels. I know, right? They're savage. They are savage. They're just going to eat your corn. Protect your corn. Protect your corn. And just imagine, like, that's your that's your project and you have nothing. You can't do anything. That's so sad. Well, I hope that he had extra Corn plants I think to did. plant. He, I think corn he had seeds. extra ones, but then he has to wait till they get to that level of growth right. again. And just, it's like a whole new meaning to my dog ate my homework. <laughs> my squirrel ate my PhD project. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> so all you biomechanists listening out there, today is a great day to be a biomechanist and not have your project reliant on whether squirrels eat it or not. <laughs> If I was involved in a, it's hard to not eat like things in a. <laughs> I don't know what how to say this. You know those projects where you are you're, like expected to build something <laughs> yeah. out of like marshmallows, and you're like, I literally just want to eat all these marshmallows. <laughs> like, like how how do you expect me to like? I don't want to build a tower. I want to sit here and eat the food, and like. I respect that squirrels just go for it, you know? They're like, I want to eat this, I'm going to eat this, and I don't care who I inconvenience. No cares at all. Yeah. Exactly. That's funny. I feel like we should, well, no, we shouldn't be more like that. We (laughs) should keep practicing restraining ourselves from eating eating things we're not supposed to. (laughs) 
One time I made the Great Wall of China out of graham crackers. And I Same! To wow! Well, mine was made out of, like, so wafers. Um, What's a wafer? Like, you know those, like, vanilla stuffed, like, wafers? Oh, those are so good. Yeah. Oh, so wow, I can't believe we both have Great Walls oh, of China. This is why we're meant to be. <laughs> we high-fived. We high-fived. Thanks for joining us today on our episode of Boom. If you'd like to reach out with a research fail, any comments, questions, or suggestions for how to make Boom better, please contact us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. And you can follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Twitter at ISBiomechanics or on Facebook at the International Society of Biomechanics. You can also follow me personally on Twitter at Melissa Boswell underscore. Or me, Hannah O'Day at Johan Ping. And special thank you to Peter Washington for creating the music for Boom. Biomechanics Biomechanics off our minds. minds.